singing has been tremendous this morning. Trust it has encouraged you. And I invite you to turn now to the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. We believe that every word of God is pure, and that's why we seek to give careful attention to it, and it brings upon us all manner of truths and doctrines and commandments. We're coming to the end of Hebrews 4. So we have come through to the point that we are reaching now, which is, God willing, with the Lord's help, looking at verses 14, 15, and 16. And it may may be helpful for us just to read from chapter 2. There's The end of chapter 2, verse 16, just to see that the theme that we're picking up on is not new, and in some ways there's a parenthetical diversion of the Apostle in chapter 3 and 4, where he begins to make application and really hammer home the need to, to press in and find, find rest, and to lay hold and keep steadfast upon Christ. So if we read from Hebrews 2, verse 16, and then to chapter 4, verse 14 to the end, let's hear the Word of God. Hebrews 2, 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Let's pray over the Word. Pray for our own hearts. Seek the Lord for His grace and help. Our Father, we thank Thee for the praises of Thy people. There's nothing quite like it. There's, there's There's no CD of Christian music I've ever listened to that even comes near to being amidst Your people and singing praises unto God. We're thankful, Lord, for that union that we have, the powerful sense of togetherness around biblical truth 
and hearts that have been touched by that truth and lives that are filled with gratitude for what we have received from the hand of our God. Make this place a place of praise, of praise that ascends sweetly as that which is acceptable in the sight of the living God. Oh, teach us to praise Thee more and more and more. Help us then as we come to Thy Word. We pray for hearts that are tender, hearts ready to receive it, and minds ready to focus, and hands and feet ready to respond to it according to Thy will. So do Thy work, extend Thy kingdom, build Thy church, save the lost, and feed Your sheep. Empower this preacher to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. At the time of the writing of this epistle, it's good for us to remember that all the worship in Jerusalem was carrying on as normal. The priests were still doing their jobs, the sacrifices were still being carried out, the pilgrimages up to Jerusalem were still going on, everything was carrying on. The fact that the temple had been rent from top to bottom, hadn't halted their work, hadn't made any of them stop and consider what's going on here and just pause all the activity, they carried on doing their work. We know that even from the internal evidence of this book because later it tells us that every priest standeth daily. That is, they're still doing this right now as I address you. Every priest continues to stand daily offering oftentimes the the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And so it's nearly impossible for the Jews that are being addressed here to think about life without the temple. Even for those that had come to Christ, even for those that had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they couldn't imagine a world without the temple. That was part of their being, part of their identity. And to, to think about it not existing, to think that you could go to Jerusalem and it no longer be there, is something that would be beyond what they could really fathom. And yet it was just around the corner. Very soon the armies of Rome would come in, Titus would lead them to take control of the city, and it would be raised to the ground. And including all of the destruction would be the devastation of the temple as well. And Jews would be scattered throughout all sorts of places and nations trying to relocate and find home elsewhere. So when this is being penned, when it's being addressed, they're still thinking about all of that there. And so the appeal of the non-believing Hebrews, if I can use that term, those that had not trusted in Christ, is you're missing out. You're missing out. You're missing out on all the things that we have that God has given. I mean, these are things prescribed by God that has a certain weight. And including that, of course, is the idea of priesthood. You don't have a priesthood. You don't have a mediator. You don't have one to represent you. What's this idea that you think you can come yourself to God? No one has a right to walk into the presence of God. You need a priest. We have a priesthood. Well, very soon that would be, as I say, destroyed, gone completely. And in a certain sense, what Paul is doing here in this book is establishing 
truths that not only are getting the minds of the Christian Jews who had believed, getting their mind on Christ and the value of Christ and the preeminence of Christ and superiority of Christ, not just doing that, but he's also laying a foundation that would help Jews after the fall of Jerusalem come to terms with the devastation. To realize, well, 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 God is in control of this. And, and part of the reason of the devastation of Jerusalem and the taking away of the temple is because it's carrying on as if all that it pointed to had not transpired. God's eliminating the distraction. God is removing that which is only in type and shadow. And so they would be able to come to this book and see, here's why it here's why it doesn't matter. Here's why it's fulfilled its purpose. There's something better, even Christ and His work. So the apostle, as I've noted to you already, as we come to the end of chapter 4, returns to the idea of priesthood. And this is going to continue through the the days and weeks ahead. As we continue into chapter 5, you will see that the idea of the priesthood will continue. And the argument relating to the priesthood is because that's part of what's coming towards these Christians, these Jewish Christians. You don't have a priesthood. And so having already given the idea that this is why the Son of God takes flesh, this is why we are saved not by one who takes the nature of angels, but by by one who takes the seed of Abraham, he, he does that so that he can represent man. Man has a representative. Man has, in Jesus Christ, a mediator, and one who can fulfill the role of making reconciliation for the sins of the people. The end of chapter 2 there, verse 17. And so he returns to this in verses 14, 15, and 16, where we are considering here this morning with the Lord's help. And I have two main points, and both of them hinge on a repetition of, 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 of a term that is used here in these verses where the apostle is, is encouraging his readers to keep doing two things. I want you to keep going on in a certain fashion or way. So, the end of verse 14, he says, Let us hold fast our profession. And then in verse 16, he says, Let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace. So that's the, the driving point. That's what the apostle is endeavoring to achieve. This is what you are meant to do. Keep going on. Keep praying. And so I've titled the message simply, Reasons to Hold Fast and Pray. Reasons to Hold Fast and Pray. So those are the two ideas that we'll consider uh, within the context of these verses. These reasons to hold fast. These reasons to pray that are established by the verses before us. And so, let's think firstly then of the reasons to hold fast. Let us hold fast our profession. The end of verse 14. Holding fast our profession. This is not new, this exhortation, is it? We have it back in chapter 3, for example. Verse 6. Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We have it also in verse 14 of the same chapter, same idea. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. You have it in other portions of the, of the book. Think of chapter 10, for example, 
verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. So, this is an important theme. I don't have to explain this very much to you. Here are people, as we've said, there's a temptation to leave, to depart, to relinquish loyalty to Jesus Christ and return to that which represented the faith of their childhood. The Jewish religion without Jesus Christ, without the Son of God. And having embraced Jesus Christ, having recognized when, whether it was the Apostle Paul or someone else came into a synagogue to evangelize, and they present the gospel, they take the Old Testament scriptures, and they begin to persuade and argue and build the case that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, He is the the, the prophesied Messiah, He has come, He has fulfilled everything everything that God said He would do in terms of Him dying for our sins and being a sacrifice for us, all of that has been done. And they were persuaded. At some point, they were persuaded. They they, they came on board. They said, yes, yes, it makes sense. Like the Bereans, they searched the Scriptures to see whether those things were so, and then concluded, amen, This, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. The Messiah has come, and they seize upon Him. And their hearts are filled with joy. They can hardly believe that they've lived in the generation in which Messiah has come. But then these unbelieving Jews, those Christ-denying Jews, they come in. And they try to persuade. They're not willing to just let them go. They're trying to build a case, trying to make an argument, trying to fight against the evangelizing that is going on from the Christian church. So as the, kind of the, the powers and forces of that begin to build, as well as the economic challenges and the, the persecution challenges that they're facing for being Christians, as it becomes more clear, as, as when this is being written, there's, there's becoming a clear distinction because in the early part, when you're reading the book of Acts, the Christians are identified as, as broadly under the umbrella of the Jewish religion. They're just a sect of the Jews. Therefore, they are protected by Roman law. They have certain privileges and rights as, as the Jewish Jews had established. So they're, they're enjoying that. But as the years go on, the Jews are fighting and endeavoring to sever them. No, they're not us. They're distinct from us. They're to be seen as a different class. And that brings then the threat of persecution, brings threat upon their lives. So all of that makes you stop and think, do I want to continue? Is the cost too much? And so the argument, the the, the continual appeal of the apostle is, hold fast. Don't let go. Don't let anything come between you and Christ. Keep looking on to Jesus. Keep going forward. Keep holding on. And so it's repeated over and over again, as you have here. Let us hold fast our profession. You've professed, have you? You profess to be a Christian? You've articulated faith in Christ. You've, you've declared it. You've said it. You've stated it. Your community knows it. Your family's aware of it. You are a Christian. You believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived and died and rose again. This man of Nazareth came and fulfilled the work sent by God. You believe it. Will you keep on believing? Will you keep on holding fast? This is a call then to faithful Christian living, to 
In one sense, it is the practical expression of the perseverance of the saints. Saints, true saints, persevere. It doesn't matter what comes their way, they will persevere. They are sustained, they are kept by God's grace and strength so that no matter what they face, they keep going on with God. But there's a practical side. The preacher, the preacher is not preaching to God to give grace, though he prays that God would give them grace. There's a human responsibility. There's a human side of it where the preacher preaches to the people, you need to hold fast. So Paul keeps peppering them with this. So what are some of the reasons to hold fast? Why? Why hold fast? Well, first, because of who our great high priest is. Because of who our great high priest is. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Again, we're going to develop this more. I'm going to look more at the priesthood in chapter 5 with you. But you get the general sense. There's always been a, there's been a priesthood. God instituted the, the priesthood in the days of Levitical offerings, Aaron and his sons, and there was a high priest, and he had this particular distinct office, and it permitted him certain privileges and responsibilities. Most well known, perhaps, is that day of atonement, that one day in the year in which he would go and represent the entire nation, making atonement for them, as you find in Leviticus 16. But here, the apostle says, we have a great high priest. Who is this great high priest? It's not, it's not of Aaron. No, no, it's not of Aaron. But it is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, let's think about how he is described here. First of all, the Son of God speaks of his divinity. We've looked at this already back in chapter 1. We've seen the divinity of Jesus Christ portrayed there in various ways. In fact, number of arguments that come forth in the first two chapters. But, but here we have it just plainly stated. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Not Son by means of adoption. That's true of us. We're adopted into the family of God. This is Son by means of essence. He has always been Son. He is eternally the Son of God. And the eternal Son of God came into this world. This is the divine this is God invading the world. This is God coming. This is Emmanuel, God with us. But he is also man. Jesus speaks of his humanity. The Son of God took into union with his divine nature, human nature. And so he is uniquely God and man. Never happened before, never going to happen again. This is completely unique where you have these two distinct natures in one person. God and man joined together. And so the argument that's coming from the, the Jews that are pressing upon these, these Jewish Christians, they're, they're, they're trying to elevate Aaron and his sons and the Aaronic priesthood and even from here, you're saying, this is Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest. That is not a title that could be ascribed to any of the priests that you're looking to. 
This is a unique one. None can compare to him. No priest can in any way be compared to the one that we have here. So it's because of who our great high priest is. We are to hold fast because if you, if you go back, if you go back, you're holding on to a priesthood. You're holding on to a religion who's hinging upon the idea that they are better represented by a man. A flesh and blood man who sins and falls short, again as we'll see in chapter 5, rather than one who is God taking human nature, how can you be better represented by one who is exactly like you in all of your shortcomings? Is it not better to have a mediator who has the very divine nature? Is it not better to have a priest who can represent you, who, who understands not just you as, as a person, as, as a human being, but also obviously understands the side in terms of the divine because he is God? Why would, why, would you hold, why would you go back? Hold fast to this. This is a reason to hold fast because of who our great high priest is. Jesus, the Son of God. And let, let me not just keep it there in the context. Let, let me say in terms of any other religion that comes your way. Think of all the religions, and, and sometimes you may be brought to wonder, what, is there a better way? Is there another religion out there? Uh, uh, something that might offer me uh, peace or, or something distinct. Maybe you, you just you have a nature that is inclined, as most of us are, we're inclined to be drawn to the novel. And you, you just want something novel. Maybe there's something novel out there that will satisfy me more. You're not going to find someone who will represent you like Jesus Christ. You're not going to find a God-man who will stand and plead your cause and bring you near to God. It's not there. But also, not only because of who our great high priest is, but because of what our great high priest has done. What has he done? Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He has passed into the heavens. The idea is He has passed through the heavens. He ascended through the heavens. Where to? Well, we already know. To the right hand of the majesty on high, back in chapter 1, we know this. He has ascended to an exalted position. This has never happened before. It's not, it's not, never happened. Never, never has human flesh been exalted by God, passing through the heavens into the very presence of God to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Think of all the ways in which the patriarchs were blessed and favored. Think of all the kings that were favored and blessed in various ways, but none of them experienced this. Not the way of the Lord Jesus did. So we are told in Ephesians 1.21 that He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. He's, he's above everything. He's passed into the heavens. So, so, I mean, what's the ultimate end of, of your religion? It's to bring you near to God. It's to be assured that you're accepted. It's to be confident that you're accepted. To have confidence. 
My prayer for you is that you would have confidence. I want the Christians here to be confident Christians, not in yourself, but in what your God has done. I want the gospel to come into your soul as a tonic, reassuring you every Lord's day that I have what I need, not in how I've lived in the past few days, but I have what I need in Christ. He's sufficient. He passed into the heavens, passed through the heavens. This has given us another reason to hold fast, another reason to keep on. The implication is, where else are you going to find this? Where else will you find one who passed into the heavens? Where else are you going to see someone representing you who passed into the heavens? Didn't happen to any of the other priests. Didn't happen to Aaron or any of his sons. This is a reason to hold fast. It's the most frightening thing to think about the fact that some can fall away. And some do fall away. They're, they're in the body, they're, they're in the church, they profess faith, they, they, they've been baptized, they, they, they convince everyone, and then they fall away. So the preacher, in his preaching, as the apostle here, he is exhorting. If you let go of this, you you can't find anything that compares. So these are just two ways, two reasons for you to hold fast. Because of what, who he is, Jesus the Son of God, and because of what he has done, he has passed into the heavens. He He has the right to pass into the heavens. He has been accepted. It's all implication of acceptance, isn't it? It's that what he has done is satisfied what's necessary so that he, you know, the other priests, they die and that's it. This one dies, is raised from the grave and taken into the heavens or through the heavens to the right hand of God. You can't find this anywhere else. Then secondly, and as I say, there's just two primary points here. The reasons to hold fast and then Reasons to pray, because, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace. And so the idea here is, is coming, coming to, to God to pray. The, the idea of coming boldly onto the throne of grace has a sense of, of, of coming with openness and plainness of speech. That's really the sense of it. Boldly, coming openly, plainly. It's good for us to remember that just practically because I think some of us have the, the, the curse of convolution. We manage when we come before God, we manage to convolute our prayers and make them far more complex. And, and sometimes maybe when you listen to me, I hope not, but maybe when you listen to me, you're, you're trying to untangle. Where's he going with that? Where, where, where's he praying? I hope not. But that can happen. You start to, 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 to have these convoluted ways of addressing God. It's not meant to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. You come with great openness. Come with great plainness of speech. And this is a, this is a wonderful encouragement to us. 
that we can come with this plainness of speech, that we can come into the very presence of God. Now, now, now don't misunderstand when it's saying come, come boldly to the throne of grace, coming before God is not coming with a reverence. It's not coming in an undignified fashion. You read the prayers of the Bible, you'll get good guidance on prayer. They're not convoluted. You see where they're going. You can, you can, you can see the burden and see the language and understand what they're doing. They're addressing the transcendent God. The language of transcendence then is used. The most holy, the terrible, the great, glorious, holy God, whatever adjectives are used to describe God, there's a sense of His transcendence, but there's a plainness. You see what's on their hearts. You see the burden that they carry and what they're desiring and what they're presenting before God as they inquire and give their burdens over to God. And where do we bring this plain speech? To the throne of grace. It's the only time we find this language, the throne of grace. You know, any, any throne can be a terrifying thing. It applies kingship, sovereignty. You don't come before the king in a light, frivolous manner. But, but for the people of God, they can come knowing that there's an openness. It's not terrifying. You can, you can come bowing in humble submission to Christ and it becomes a throne of grace. Now, we'll look at that more in just a moment. But the language is reminding us that as we come to this priest, it is a kingly priest. It harkens back to a psalm that we've dealt with already, Psalm 110, where we see this priest is a kingly priest. And that's what Jesus Christ is. He is a kingly priest. He's not just priest mediating for the people, but He is king, sovereignly governing over them and all their affairs. So when they come to a throne, that's, that's the language that reminds us of that fact. In fact, I wonder here if there isn't, again, a sense of the tabernacle language at play because, because you come, you know, the, the, the high priest entered in once a year into that most holy place and he came in before the mercy seat and the mercy seat functioned as it was over the ark of God there. The mercy seat functioned as a, as a kind of throne of God because that's where the tangible, if you like, presence of God was. In other words, the mercy seat becomes like a throne. You want to know where God is? He's there in the most holy place, above the mercy seat. That blood-sprinkled mercy seat is where God is. That's His throne in the midst of Israel. And for the priest to go in once a year, just once a year he went in, it was terrifying. So if that's, if that's what he's doing, and obviously that becomes clear as you go through this epistle, the idea of the mercy seat Will, will come forth. But if that's right here, the sense of the throne of grace, envisioning that, that throne of the mercy seat where God's presence was, if that's it, then, then the, the, the going back, going back to the old Jewish religion, you have a high priest who goes once a year, terrified, terrified, going in before the presence of God, wondering if he's going to survive it. And in contrast... This man, Jesus, the Son of God, who passed into the heavens, enables sinners, not just one in the entire world, in any given generation, but all who believe, all who trust, all who submit, can come and come into His presence, come to His throne. 
And find it to be a throne of grace. So what reasons do we have to pray? Well, number first, despite His perfection and power, He understands human weakness. Despite His perfection and power, He understands human weakness. Verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We don't have a high priest. Those of us who believe in Christ and see Him as priest, this is not one who doesn't understand us. Yes, He's perfect. Yes, He's all-powerful. But He understands human weakness. The perfection and power of Jesus does not mean He doesn't understand what you go through. In fact, the opposite is true. I mean, you've, you know what it's like where sometimes you're, 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 you're going through something and someone tries to help you, but they've never been where you are. And so, whether rightly or wrongly, you, you just don't feel like their, their words don't seem to help. And then someone comes alongside, and they have been right where you are. And they begin to open up and walk you through the stages of your grief, your sorrow, your hardship. And you feel the barriers begin to break down in your own soul. And you begin to feel ministered onto. The Lord Jesus, having taken our nature and having been appointed a life of greater agony than anyone, to the extent that he is prophesied as being a man of sorrows. He's able to look at every single one of his people and he knows and understands their weaknesses, their infirmities more than anyone. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is moved and senses the weaknesses of the human frame. Here is one in his eternal being never felt hunger never sensed poverty, never knew what it was like to be sad. God doesn't feel like you feel. 
doesn't fluctuate, doesn't feel threatened, doesn't sense fear. But then God takes humanity. And this God-man is able then, by means of that miracle, to understand the weakness of the human frame, as in he has walked through it. He has sensed it for himself, not just through divine omniscience, knowing it, but feeling it. So despite his perfection and power, he understands human weakness. That's a reason to pray. Why would you go to anyone else? These Jewish souls would come to, yes, a priest that they knew wasn't perfect, but he, they didn't understand all their sorrows and griefs. So again, the argument is, why, why on earth would you go back? Hold fast to Jesus, the Son of God, and pray. Pray knowing that your mediator is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Also, despite his perfection and power, he understands human temptation. He understands human temptation. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was in all points tempted like as we are. He was tempted to break every commandment like you. And yet he was tempted to an intensity far beyond anything you've ever felt or sensed. I know that because I think I've addressed this before, but the only way to tempt, if, you're, if, if the effort of Satan is to tempt the perfect man, he has to ramp up the intensity to the highest degree he can. It's easy to tempt someone weak. Take an immature believer. Take someone who's not a believer. Take someone who lives in the world there and expresses and displays all sorts of particular sins and proclivities to theft. Then you come, you know, you know someone who's stolen before and then you come with a plan here. Would you like to join me in this plan to steal again? He's going he's gonna to step into that far more readily than perhaps another. You're dealing with one who's perfect. The kind of convincing that it's going to take. In other words, Satan has to bring his most fierce assault. Forces all the forces he can muster to assault the humanity of the Son of God. And that's what he does then. That's, that's what you have in the, in the temptation in the wilderness. Forty days. With the last Adam being called and sent to do what was necessary because of the actions and 
consequences of the first Adam who's in a garden of paradise and everything's perfect and his nature is inclined to obedience. And he's tempted and he falls. Now the Son of God coming to undo what was done and bring redemption to those fallen sons of Adam. He, he goes into a scene not of paradise, but of wilderness, of fasting, where the body is weakened. And he is assaulted. Day and night, Satan comes, assaulting him with every temptation, everything that had worked in the past. All the great patriarchs, all the great men of God, everything that he had utilized to bring down even the mightiest men of God, he brings it all and wraps it up and he assaults the Son of God. And after 40 days, he departs from him for a season. It's not over, but for a season. Christ having shown the victory so he keeps through his life, he comes at him, perhaps in ways not fully recorded to us. But our Lord does say in John fourteen thirty, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. And so they, they, you see, there's the difference. There's the difference. Because Satan comes seeking to devastate the plan of salvation through thwarting what Christ was here to do. And so temptation is key. Make him fall. Cause him not to be able to be the perfect lamb so that his sacrifice cannot measure up, so that his blood cannot cleanse sin. But he comes to Christ time and time again. He can't find anything in him, which is our problem. See, the, the sin isn't in the temptation. The sin is in our being drawn by the temptation. See, there's something in you and there's something in me and our nature. Where Satan finds a foothold, a bias, a weakness. There's something in our flesh that invites the temptation drawn to it and is drawn to it. You know, and Christians sometimes get into a habit of always blaming the devil. <laughs> that, that devil... It's the devil's fault. Well, the devil comes and tempts. But it's your flesh that is drawn to it, that is a, feels the appeal to what's being offered. Your flesh, it's you. When the devil came to that same flesh and blood, that same seed of Abraham, in the Son of God and tempted, it could find nothing in him. But in you and me, he finds things. So we're told the distinction between us and Christ is in this simple statement. Without sin. Tempted? Yet without sin. Of course, theologians then have argued about whether or not Christ merely had the ability to not sin or whether he could not sin. Is it simply the ability to not sin? He had the capability to not sin or he could not sin. 
and good men have fallen on different sides of that discussion. But the argument, of course, for those that believe he could not sin is because you have the human nature brought into union with the divine. So that this, this, this is the reason, the reason why he could not sin is because God cannot sin. And bringing the divine nature into union with the human means that he cannot sin. And those on the other side, they say then, well, that makes a farce of the temptations because he can't really be tempted. But that's not true. His human flesh still senses, still feels, still experiences the assault. He's just immovable. But it's just as, if anything, like I've said to you already, what Christ experienced in terms of temptation is far more forceful than anything you've ever experienced. But he understands. In other words, when, let's take it and make it practical. Here's the point. This is why you pray. Because you, you get tempted. You're constantly tempted. What are you to do? Call me up and say, Pastor, what's your best tactic against X sin? <laughs> well, you can call me and maybe there's something practical you, could, practical you can do. I don't know. But, but you can't, you can't, Wall everything in your life to make it so that you won't sin. You won't avoid sin by rules and practical ways and forms. You won't. You're dealing with something not that comes upon you merely, but that which comes upon you in the form of temptation finds, finds a, a foothold, as I've said. The, the, the hooks can get into you. There's part of you that actually is drawn out by it. So what you need is victory over your nature. And you have a right even to pray, as our Lord taught us, to lead us not into temptation. God, by your providence, keep me away from temptation. And then when it is there, when you've appointed it for your good purposes and your glory, deliver me from evil. Give grace sufficient for this nature of mine that has a proclivity to those sins. God, deliver me. Well, this, is, this is the reason to pray. So Lord Jesus knows that specific temptation. He knows, he knows what it's like. And He's able to give the measure of grace necessary to resist it. It's able to supply the needs that you have. Also, we'll see here, we've seen despite his perfection and power, he understands human weakness. Despite his perfection and power, he understands human temptation. Also, because of his, because of his perfection and power, he can dispense needed mercy. So, Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now you find grace and mercy paired often. 
One of the hymns that we sang had them paired together as well. And although they're connected, it's helpful for us to distinguish between grace and mercy. So just follow me here. Mercy is needed for the consequences of sin in our lives. And grace is needed for the presence of sin in our lives. Mercy for the consequences, grace for its presence. That's what you and I need. Because some of what we experience in this life are the consequences of sin. Sometimes they're the consequences of other people's sin. Consequences of a fallen world, the sin, what sin has brought into this world. The consequences, I mean, think, of, think, of, think of the breakdown of our health, aging, and all of the associated struggles that come with that. What, what is that? It's the consequences of sin. And it brings what? It brings misery. And what do you need? You need mercy. You need one who understands the feeling of the misery that it brings and will give mercy. Understands how to dispense mercy. And for the sin in your heart and life, what do you need? You need grace. You need the grace of God. And when do you need these things? When do you need them? It says at the end, in time of need. In time of need. Now, are you to read that and think, these are these sort of strange occasions that happen every now and again, you know, maybe half a dozen times a year or something? No. (laughs) Let me ask you, when are you in need? When? Are you in need right now? Are you? If you know yourself, if you have any comprehension of yourself and the world in which you're living, you put your hand up and say, I am always in need. Always. I'm never not in need. I'm constantly in need. I'm I'm not God. I am always in need. In need. Thus. Thus. Therefore, this is all for always. It is We can come boldly to the throne of grace. We come with plainness of speech to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help all the time as we come seeking it. All the time. This is a reason to pray. Because it's inviting you to come with all your burdens, all your cares, all your concerns, all your sorrows and challenges and everything that is happening without you and everything you're struggling within you and you pray. You pray about it all. You bring it to God. I mean, I mean, why? Why is it that God has detailed in His Word so many of the interactions of Jesus with those that He met in His ministry? You could summarize it very simply. It could be way more abbreviated. Instead, you get these multiplied instances of people coming to Him and receiving grace and mercy. You think of Him, especially as He... He dispenses mercy to people as they come looking for it. I'll just quote some scriptures. Matthew 9, 27. Two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Matthew 15, 22. A woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Matthew 17, 15. And 16, Lord, have mercy on my son. This is after they come down to the Mount of Transfiguration. For he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. 
Luke 17, what we looked at last Lord's Day evening with the ten lepers. And they meet him, standing afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Mercy. They cry for mercy, and he bestows it. Their circumstances are different, but he meets the need. He sees, he sees, and he hears the cry, have mercy. We think of these people, these people who are, who are blind. That's the consequences of a fallen world. They're feeling it. This is the consequences of sin. Have mercy, Lord. A man is looking at his son who's a lunatic, a, a woman who's interceding on behalf of her daughter in need. These are, these are the consequences of sin, and they're appealing for mercy. And every time he comes, able to meet the need. But also, because of his perfection and power, he can dispense needed grace. Not just needed mercy, but needed grace. That's for the presence of sin in our lives. You have it. You have sin in your life. What do you need? You need grace. You need grace. So that you can understand Romans 5.20. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It's there, available. Grace to cover all my sin. Grace to know that I am reconciled to God. Grace, grace to help me through this world and all the, cons- the, the feeling of temptation within my soul and the effects of, of my fallen nature upon my own heart. And, and, and you're told to what? You come to, you come to a throne of grace, a throne of grace. You want grace to help in time of need? You go to a throne of grace. That's not a piece of furniture. <laughs> you know, it's going to a piece of furniture. This is some sacred piece of furniture. It's a throne of grace. If I touch it ten times, you know, it's like, a, like the, the prayer beads, you know. You go around through them, feeling them, and say the mantra or prayer, whatever you're told, how many times the priest tells you to say it or whatever. You say, there's, some, there's something sacred in that. This isn't that. It's not come to this piece of furniture and touch it and you'll find grace. No! It's the person. It's the person enthroned there. Jesus, the Son of God. That's why you find grace there. He's there. He's there. You're, not, you're not thinking about when he talks about a mercy seat. You're not just coming to a mercy seat, some, some piece of furniture. It's, it's representative of, of Christ. You're coming to a person. You're coming to this Jesus, the Son of God, who knows He knows the weakness. He understands temptation. And is empowered and willing to dispense mercy and grace. This is why you pray. Oh, Christian, pray. Why do we we not pray? (laughs) Why do we not pray more? Oh... It begs the question, why, 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 why are God's people prayerless? It has to be that we don't see our need. That's, that's, why, that's why sometimes providence appoints hard seasons. Because in some cases, not all, in some cases, you don't know that every moment of every day you're in need. And God has to put 
his divine thumb, as it were, and start putting pressure on your life and to help you see, my child, you're always in need. Always in need. So he puts salt in the wound. He puts the pressure. Why? Why does he put the pressure? So that you begin to wake up from your numb condition, from your stupor, and you say, yes, I'm in need. And then you go to him. What for? Grace and mercy. And it doesn't make you jump through hoops for it, does it? You have a priest. You have a priest. He's yours. Not that you're going to have him. Not that you have to earn the right to him. You have a priest. You have a priest. You have a great high priest. He belongs to you. By covenant love, he is yours. By an indissoluble union, bringing you by faith into him, he is your great high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for you and respond to your cries, your pathetic whimpers, God of mercy. Lord, give me grace. And it's there for you. Hold fast, believer. Hold fast. And pray. And Lord, help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, Christian, look, look upon the face of your beloved Savior. Do you see a scowl? No, no, no. You see a countenance of love. So much love he was willing to die bear all the judgment you deserve for your sin. He is compassion incarnate. And he loves you. Hold fast to him. And seek him. Lord, bless your word. Help us, your people. Make us more sensitive to the fact that we are a needy people. To feel our need. And to keep on praying and holding fast to Jesus, the Son of God. Oh, strengthen us, Lord. Give us 
greater consistency and perseverance. Make us more holy, more like Jesus. To be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.